Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome back to Axioms of Liberty podcast, where I read some of the most prolific philosophical political writers in today's day and age in order to help you have a better and deeper understanding of what freedom is and what it can mean to you and how to apply it in your life. And today we're going to continue with the Voluntarist Handbook. Chapter 35 is actually um, Hanslet's uh, Economics in One's Lesson. So I'm going to skip this chapter because I actually want to read that on the entire – I want to read that book in its entirety because it's not a very long book. And I mean the chapter's like super short. It's like maybe a three-minute read. So I'm just going to skip that one altogether and we'll come back to that one later on in another episode of the show of itself because it's I feel like a very important ep- one to try to understand how economics actually works because economics is actually what s- shapes the social stratosphere of uh, society as a whole so we're going to continue on to chapter 36 in this episode how markets have delivered more economic equality by Anthony Samaroff I recently attended the Soho Forum debate between Ben Burgess, Democratic Socialist, and Gene Epstein, Libertarian, on the question of whether capitalism or socialism would lead to more prosperity, equality, and liberty. Ben took it for granted that a socialist economy would be more equal, and Gene did not fight hard on this point indeed. Libertarians were once fond of saying, while capitalism may yield the unequal distribution of wealth, socialism yields only the equal distribution of poverty. Well, let's take a look at the facts. We are told that capitalism creates large disparities in income and wealth, and inequality might seem like a real issue if we only train our attention on the dollar values. More equal than ever. In the material sense, however, we are the most equal society that has ever been. A billionaire has a Maserati or a Rolls Royce, but he can't drive the streets much faster than you and I. Yet there was a time when the rich were carted around in horse-drawn carriages while most people walked. The former is a form of equality. Pineapples and other tropical fruits were once rare and highly valued exotic items. In fact, Charles II of England is seen being presented a pineapple, surely worth thousands of pounds, in a 17th century painting. Nowadays, the rich frequent swanky restaurants, but most people in Western countries have access to more calories of quality of food than they could ever possibly eat. That's not all. The richest person in the world can't get that much better of a broadband connection than you can, or much comfier pairs of shoes, a bed, or even a couch. In terms of the operations of day-to-day life, we are becoming more equal. Increasingly everyone, even those in third world countries, have access to a smartphone which can reach the internet and all the education, art, music, culture, and social media that everyone else has access to. A rich person has a flush toilet. You have a flush toilet. 
a rich person has water coming out of his taps. You also have water coming out of your taps. A rich person has electricity. You also have electricity. You can afford soap. You can eat fruit that is flown in from all over the world in every season. The richest lord in the world a couple hundred years ago couldn't even dream of the luxury that people who are considered impoverished in first world countries live in, competing for resources under a socialist regime. Burgess admits to wanting to place institutions like banking and finance, utilities, healthcare, and Lord knows how many others under so-called democratic control in the name of egalitarianism. But we have to wonder how the masses are going to vote on how the public gets access to telecommunications while still serving the user. Ultimately, private business owners are answerable to the consumer. It might look like they get to boss everyone around and make the decisions, but if someone does it better, they are out of luck. They will be replaced by a competitor. Removing the market does not solve the problem of competition if this is even indeed a competition. There will still be plenty of competition for government contracts and favored positions, even once institutions are under democratic control. Ultimately, someone is going to have to wield a disproportionate, dare say unequal, amount of power and likely will get rather a lot more than others. Ultimately, it is true that the more dollars you have on a free market, the more votes on what is produced and by whom you get. But, as I've explained, the excessive wealth of the rich is not stored under a mattress. The only way they can keep it is if they invest it in things that serve the public by creating better products and services. If they invest in lines of production no one wants, they will lose the investment. In this way, the market to the extent that is indeed a free market with only mutually agreed upon exchanges forces an alignment of interests of those who possess the wealth with those of the consumers. The consumers decide what the rich have to invest in to stay rich with their votes. Jean mentioned over and over in the debate that those who make up the ranks of the working class control a disproportionate amount of consumer spending and therefore have a more or equal say in how our society functions than most people would think. The issue of healthcare. We can pit the market against socialism in the most seemingly inegalitarian case, which is the economics of life and death, namely healthcare. In a debate with me, Burgess expressed horror that on a free market, a rich person could buy their way to the front of the queue for life-saving treatments and said it would be better if the state rationed these things. This seems to make sense if we take a steady state view of the economy, but economies are not fixed. Supposing that there was only one surgeon who could perform the operation, Allowing the highest bidder to get first access to the surgeon would bring so much money in that it would be possible to calculate how much time the surgeon should be performing operations for the very wealthy and how much time he should spend teaching others to perform the same procedures. 
it would send out a signal to all other surgeons that this is a desperately needed specialization and that they should stop what they are doing immediately to train up in this new style of operation. In the long term, far more people would have access to the procedure at an affordable price than if the state merely rationed out access to places. In the latter case, waiting lists would be huge and people would die for want of qualified surgeons. A strange form of equalization tends to occur over time whenever the market is allowed to function. Is access to healthcare in the USA unequal at the moment? You bet, but that is only because the market is not allowed to function. The market creates an upward pressure on the quality of products and a downward pressure on their prices because consumers want the best product at the best price. This means production for us is production for profit. What is only accessible to the rich today becomes more equally accessible to everyone tomorrow. That is why at first hardly anyone can afford a computer. But because the greedy rich opted for exuberance rather than charity, buying expensive computers rather than giving away their money to the poor, the companies that made those computers could afford to fund the research that led to the relative supercomputer that you are reading this article on today, affordable to you. And that's the end of the article. Definitely like that one nice and short brought it together very um, succinctly. I'm trying to think here that has, I like this part about how it talks about in terms of operations day-to-day life, we are becoming more equal. Increasingly everyone, even those in third world countries, have access to a smartphone which can reach the internet and all the education, art, music, culture, and social media that everyone has access to. I think that's a very prescient part to try to put in perspective the overall picture of the thing because I feel like the media and a lot of the politics they try to mm, it's not race baiting but it's like a a poverty baiting type of thing like they they really like to focus on these things that they deem as economic injustices is what they try to justify it as but they focus on these things in such a small window of things that they forget the greater wider picture of in the 90s having a cell phone was only for the rich but it's because the rich purchased the cell phones and continue to do so regardless of the price it actually drove the innovation and gave the companies who created cell phones the necessary resources to invest in creating more better more easier accessible and more cheaper for every individual the ability to purchase cell phones and then therefore now everyone has cell phones think about the quote-unquote big screen tvs like everybody used to have big screen tvs who were only the rich people but you can go down to costco now and get like a 60 inch television for only 300 dollars. why is that like yes technology in an in and of itself is one of the very few sectors in the world that have actually benefited from deflation that even in the face of an inflating currency, the ability for technology to deflate itself is so great that it even 
fights back against the inflation of the currency that the product is, you know, measured in. And uh, it's one of the actually very few. And there's also, there's a couple of other um, uh, sectors that this is actually applicable to, but not very many. But the things that actually cost real human time, like food, healthcare, housing, like these things take real resources and take real human time in order to create. There's not been any technological increasements or advancements in offering these services to people have actually are the some of the most expensive things in the economy at this time. And we have as well like let's see, let's see, let's see. Do 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 like how how long has it been since do you would you would it be hard to argue that everybody has more people today have access to beds couches and shoes today than say 100 years ago 200 years ago i think we could argue to say that yes more people have a greater access to those things than ever before so is that not an overall more greater equalization of the societal norms i would say so but anyway just a couple little footnotes that i thought was super important to try to bring into the broader and greater like overall picture of the equalization because social justice warriors try to create these economic injustices as justification for their reasonings in order to justify the intervention of the state into the broader economic uh, society and actually by doing so they actually create more disruptions than they actually do which even creates more injustices which in turn just continues to grease the flywheel of more intervention for sake of economic righteousness it's absurd all right next chapter chapter 37 the state is too dangerous to tolerate Defending the continued existence of the state despite having absolute certainty of a corresponding continuation of its intrinsic engagement in extortion, robbery, willful destruction of wealth, assault, kidnapping, murder, and countless other crimes requires that one imagine non-state chaos, disorder, and death on a scale that non-state actors seem incapable of causing. If a population acts to serve its common interests, it will never choose the state. In reaching this conclusion, we need not deny the countless problems that will plague people living in a society without a state. Any anarchical society being peopled in normal proportions by vile and corruptible individuals will have crimes and miseries aplenty. But everything that makes life without a state undesirable makes life with a state even more undesirable. The idea that the antisocial tendencies that afflict people in every society can be cured or even ameliorated by giving a few persons great discretionary power over all others is upon serious reflection seen to be a widely mistaken notion. Perhaps it is needless to add that the structural checks and balances on which Madison relied to restrain the government's abuses have proven to be increasingly unavailing 
and bearing in mind the expensive claims and actions under the present U.S. regime. These checks and balances are almost wholly superseded by a form of executive Caesars in which the branches of government that were supposed to check and balance each other have instead coalesced into a mutually supporting design to plunder the people and reduce them to absolute domination by the state. Anarchists did not try to carry out genocide against the Armenians in Turkey. They did not deliberately starve to death millions of Ukrainians. They did not create a system of death camps to kill Jews, Gypsies, and Slavs in Europe. They did not firebomb scores of large German and Japanese cities and drop nuclear bombs on two of them. They did not carry out a great leap forward that killed scores of millions of Chinese people. They did not attempt to kill everybody with any appreciable education in Cambodia. They did not launch one aggressive war after another. They did not implement trade sanctions that killed perhaps 500,000 Iraqi children. In debates between anarchists and statists, the burden of proof clearly should rest on those who place their trust in the state. Anarchy's mayhem is wholly conjectural. The state's mayhem is undeniably factually horrendous. Although I admit that the outcome in a stateless society will be bad, because not only are people not angels, but many of them are irredeemably vicious in the extreme, I conjecture that the outcome in a society under a state will be worse, and indeed much worse, because, first, the most vicious people in society will tend to gain control of the state, and second, by virtue of this control over the state's powerful engines of death and destruction, they will wreak vastly more harm than they ever could have caused outside the state. It is unfortunate that some individuals commit crimes, but it is stunningly worse when such criminally inclined individuals wield state power. The lesson of the precautionary principle is plain. Because people are vile and corruptible, the state, which holds by far the greatest potential for harm and tends to be captured by the worst of the worst, is much too risky for anyone to justify its continuation. To tolerate it is simply to play with fire, but to chance the total destruction of the human race. And that's the end of that article. I think I was sitting here thinking while I was reading it that the this part right here, it says, I admit that the outcome of a stateless society will be bad because not only people are angels, but many of them are irredeemably vicious in the extreme. I conjecture that the outcome in a society under a state will be worse and much worse because first, the most vicious people in society will tend to gain control of the state. I think this is a very prescient part to remember that Yes, there are individuals in this world who are evil. There are individuals who are psychopathic in nature and do not adhere to the quote-unquote normal rules of what is considered uh, socially accepted as normal behavior. But when we create this entity with powers who can circumcede any other individual's interjection 
and removal that those individuals who are psychopathic in nature will be drawn to those positions of power and will wield them for their own benefit against the will of the majority, regardless of what we do. I think this other quote too is very good. Everything that makes life without a state undesirable makes life with the state even more undesirable. Is that most the vast majority of individuals try to envision this world without a state and think, oh my God, all of these things are so bad because there are so many bad people who will do those bad things. Like that exists today, but it's actually vast proportionately even worse because the bad people that do all those bad things that you're so afraid of are protected by the state. Like that is what is happening today. That is the society that we live in. We have vast swaths of individuals who can literally get away with the murder and aren't brought to justice because the position of power that they hold holds sway over the quote-unquote justice system that we have in place that are supposed to enforce these rules. They just pay a fine and get off with some, you know, third misdemeanor or, you know, something that's not as much, but the common man gets the full brutal force of if they did the same exact crime with the same exact evidence proving as such, they would get the book thrown at them and put in jail for life. Like, none of it makes sense. All right, next one, super short too, so we're going to knock that one out as well. Chapter 38. An invisible enemy turned inward. From Clint Russell of the Liberty Lockdown Podcast. With rare exception, war has been fought by the poor and powerless on behalf of the wealthy and powerful. No war in my lifetime has broken this pattern. Young men go overseas under false pretenses, wrapped in the United States flag to propagate a message which the flag does not represent. Far too many return covered in that very flag. I've witnessed firsthand the mental toll taken upon those who realized the atrocities they committed only when it was too late. Hands trembling, crippled with guilt, reaching for whatever substance might soothe their moral aches, left uncared for and unhealed. All too often they replace that substance eventually with a revolver. My opposition to further wars at its heart lies in the devastation the state has wrought both upon the soldiers who were destroyed internally by these acts of aggression and upon the million-plus external victims left in their overseas wake. Today, having learned none of the lessons the war on terror made plain, it has been turned inward. A new, invisible enemy has arisen morphing from an anamorphous extremist religious terrorism into a repository virus and then backed into a new label of biological terrorism. No liberty is left unmolested when war is afoot and these wars are eternal intentionally as so. The apparatuses foolishly allowed for and established under the war on terror namely the NSA, the DHS, the TSA, plus a newly enriched FBI, are now ramping up to be wielded against those who demand that their bodily autonomy 
and medical privacy be respected. Libertarians, the peaceful live and let live, just leave me alone types, have been added to the list of potential homegrown domestic terrorism threats, according to the former director of the CIA, no less. We all know what this label entails. Endless war, endless persecution, endless prosecution without due process, that no rights will be respected, and that if you demand that they be so, your life will be very much in jeopardy. There now exists a fantastic alliance of employer-mandated vaccine compliance in which millions are now left with the brutal choice of either injecting under duress a substance for which long-term side effects cannot be known or being de facto excommunicated from society for fear of a virus which was in all likelihood created with tax money stolen from these very victims. War has been declared on the American people by the government they, at least on paper, had sworn to protect them. Very well said, Clint. I agree, and we can already see that I think for the overall factor of what we've um, has transpired the last three years, I think that they, they pulled the trigger too early. The, the socialists or collectivists um, trying to swoop in this whole ideal of vaccine mandates and passports, you know, some of the major cities definitely went into as extreme of a lockdown as you possibly could create, but it didn't work because here we are in 2023 and everything is quote unquote back to normal. We have you know they're they're trying this new one now there's what white pneumonia in children now that's the new thing like it's like when are they gonna stop with this crazy nonsense it just doesn't make sense but i can see that they could try to create or foster a narrative that would ultimately be something you can because i mean a virus is really technically something you can't point at there's not a real enemy to say they are over there let's go get them there's this invisible enemy to where now your neighbor becomes the enemy because you don't know if the neighbor has the infection or the disease or the virus or whatever it is they're going to try to paint it as this thing in order for you to get to i think it's more to psychologically break down the level of trust you have in society because if you can break down the moral fabrication of society and break that trust down that's when true real craziness can actually occur and then you're actually fostering the environment needed in order to justify the clamping down on more of the freedoms, freedom of movement, freedom of association, freedom of speech, et cetera, et cetera. We saw that with COVID with the, the Twitter files where they literally FBI, CIA actually worked with the major media platforms in order to stop certain narratives from being propagated on the platform. And I think any major media platform is subject to this type of nonsense. And that's the hardest part about it is trying to figure out how can we get around that that uh, political censorship because that's what it is, right? It's just a political censorship apparatus 
that's under the guise of these three-letter agencies that like, okay, well, if we have all these checks and balances in government that's supposed to make this thing, why are these three-letter agencies operating outside of the powers of the checks and balances that these other, you know, the judicial, presidential, and executive branches just stop all that from happening? Like, that's not, that's the government now. The government is these three-letter agencies. The government is these agencies that do not answer to the other three branches that are supposed to keep them in check. Like, it's mutated into this sideshow of things that are in these black box that nobody really has any oversight or control over, and they just kind of just do whatever they want. And it's just continually accelerating and getting worse. It's just, where do we go from here? What's going to be the next one? Because there has to be more things to be like, look over there so you don't watch what we're doing over here. And I think that next shoe is about to drop, about eventually because something has to give there's too many things that are going wrong in too many different places that they need to try to focus the the overall mainstream uh consciousness onto the next thing you know they you know it's like look at the ukraine war it was only so good for like well, a year and a half and then poof now we got israel and everything in ukraine is all forgot about and hey guys get get your shit together over in ukraine get 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 peace going because we know we got the hot war in israel and gaza and that's the that's the main thing we should all focus on now like just so tired of it anyway hope you guys enjoyed today's reads all three chapters and uh we will see you guys next week <laughs>